This is episode number 38 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We drop new episodes of this podcast, of course, every Monday morning. You can find them at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast, and you can also find them on iTunes. If you do happen to listen on iTunes, please leave us a review. You can also give us a call, 904-270-9603. Any feedback, comments, or questions you'd like to submit to the show, feel free to call us, leave a voicemail, or text them in. Rob waits by the phone 24-7. Absolutely. We'll we'll cover any questions you send in in a segment at the end of the show if we deem it worthy. Otherwise, we'll just respond in private and we'll answer your questions either way. What are we doing tonight? What are you drinking? Tonight, I'm taking a page out of your book. I did a dark and stormy, which we'll tweet out the recipe. I tried earlier Delirium Noel, which for our listeners, this is actually a divergence for us because it was a beer. It's actually quite tasty, but I bought it in the store. It wasn't draft and it was not too good. How about you? <laughs> so first time we tried a beer on the show and it doesn't work out. Failed me. Have to, Failed me for the last the, time. Go back to the dark and stormy. <laughs> I'm doing a Cuba Libre. I think that those are our three go-tos are what? Dark and stormy, Cuba Libre, and, and a Moscow, Moscow Mule. Mule. And those are the ones. All right. Yeah, again, we'll tweet out the recipes. Or straight up scotch. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so what are we doing tonight? This week, we're going to be touching a bit on the social media front, new Facebook share buttons. We told you about these, if you remember, probably, what, a month or two ago? Yeah, when they first rolled out. So we broke it here first. Not really, but we'll claim (laughs) that. Facebook has released some data on these new buttons, how they've been performing. So we're going to recap them and tell you how right we were. Moving right along, Gmail actually had some big changes. So we were just reeling, reeling from this tab change of our inbox. But they've also rolled out some other changes that have potential to affect email marketers and how we track things. Moving right along, guidelines for your mobile website and how this might affect how you rank in the future and some considerations you need to keep in mind. Lastly, a tool that is very underrated in the research world and how you can become more competitive, Google Trends. They release some updates that you should take into account because it can help you get some more meaningful data out of that as a marketer. So, starting us off, Professor Rob, tell us how right we were about these new Facebook buttons. Is that my new title on the show, Professor Rob? Until I come up with something else. (laughs) Okay, something more derogatory. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you'll come up with something. All right, so like you said, we broke this... I think this was at the start of November, Facebook rolled out a new share and like button design for everyone who has those things on their website. So if you go who has for a website, right, exactly. <laughs> so if you go to, if you go to the Beard of Marketers, you actually see the new design. It's, it's been rolled out on our site for a while. I mean, it was a slow rollout across the web, but basically for those who aren't familiar with what they used to look like and what they look like now, it was sort of like a light blue grayish color with a little thumb for a like, same similar color scheme and it just said share for the share button design. The new design now rolls out with like that Facebook bluish purplish color and just says like with the Facebook F or share with the Facebook F Hmm. again. So much simpler design, but much bolder color scheme that that certainly stands out from the other share buttons that people usually have in their row of share buttons, like the Google Pluses and all the other things. Mm -hmm. It's definitely bolder, brighter, definitely attracts more attention. So a lot of people were speculating that the whole point of all of this new overhaul, well, number one, to roll out a new button design that's going to look good across multiple devices because the old one, let's face it, did not. It was a little ugly. Yeah, exactly. So, and if you looked at it on a retina display um, or iPads or mobile devices, it wasn't the prettiest thing to look at. So the new design, you know, takes all those things into consideration, looks great across multiple devices. The other thing, though, is 
to increase sharing, liking, and the usability of all of those functions on Facebook when you're browsing the web. So some stats to throw at you, you know, because I love to do stats on the show. It's, it's an easy way to convey my important ideas that I think are important, but, you know, it's third-person, third-party proof. 22 billion views of the Facebook like and share buttons across the web every single day. So decent sample size. <laughs> that's, that's such a massive number, right? <laughs> right. So if they can just get a small percentage increase in usability of those buttons, that's massive mm-hmm. uh, for the overall share of. And, that's and a new wing of, on the Zuckerberg mansion. Right. So the reason why I brought this up is because I think it's a good example of testing online for to improve conversion rates that's sort of outside the norm. So, right. So most people are thinking, let's increase conversion rates by increasing sales or leads or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. This is the same sort of thinking, just applying it to what matters to Facebook. And that is just usage. So let's take these buttons. Let's come up with new designs that you know, slowly roll them out, make sure they're testing properly, and we are actually seeing improvements in usability. And let's push them out to the web, and here are some of the results. So in one month, they in, they witnessed a 47% increase. Boom. In everyone's faces. <laughs> 47% increase in usage uh, of Facebook shares across the web. Wow. So that's massive. It's and one then, thing to like something. It's a, a different thing to actually share and get a little bit more active yeah, in the, the social absolutely. realm. I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not a huge Facebook user, likes don't actually mean much of anything except that you're now sort of going to get updates from sure. those, right? So sharing right. is though what, is what throws it out in other people's faces. Right. So that's the really important thing. Um, year over year, though, you're looking at a 170% increase in usage of what those share things. Up? So massive increases on Facebook uh, simply by doing what you know what you and I do every day for for other companies, and that is just testing those things, but doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, updating those designs led to a huge increase in Facebook share. I don't know if you've noticed an increase in traffic uh, across any of your domains that you look at. To sending them out to Facebook? Oh, well, no, traffic com- coming from Facebook due to this increased usage of the share. Uh, I have uh, not, but typically... Yeah, I have not, okay. um, but I'll, it's definitely something I'll take a look at. Maybe we'll share next uh, episode if we can provide some real world. I actually, before the show, checked out a few of the domains that I, that I manage, and I didn't see uh, what I would consider a significant increase in traffic from Facebook. So mm-hmm. could just be some of the niches that I'm in. I will not share those on the air. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I, mean, I wonder, too, out of the um, – it'd be interesting to know some of the typical usage – of shares like do people actually click through the facebook provided share or is it something that is like an impression and then later on people check it out so it's right maybe an effect that hides itself in normal analytics one would assume though that with a 47 percent increase that that would show itself right uh, again though it might just be limited to certain industries mm-hmm. um or it may be a little too soon to maybe see the some of the long-term effects sure but of those increases we might not have seen it but it's something that you guys should all check into and if you haven't yet and you've been snoozing yeah. update your buttons right if if you're using some of the latest versions of the code it should have automatically happened mm-hmm. uh like happened on most of the domains I, I look at but if you're using some of the really old whack code <laughs> um take a look at it update to the new versions and you'll be good to go yeah so moving right along next topic bump bump um google has done it once again some more email changes we just reeled ourselves from the tab experiment and change which we kind of covered at i would say at length over the last couple yeah, of a few months di- a few different times as well yeah and you know net net wasn't a huge shakeup. it wasn't armageddon like people 
predicted it would be. But a new change that potentially has some significant impacts are multiple sources now reporting. And this actually hasn't been announced formally by Google yet, but what... You heard it here first. Yes, of course. There are multiple sources out there that are reporting that Google is starting to cache email images. The impact that that provides to us as marketers is we rely on users downloading images from us to understand information about our users. We get to know their location. We get to know their devices. We get to know time of day. A lot of different things. Or just, just open rate. I mean, right, yeah, just right, open right, rate yeah, at exactly. all. Yeah. When Google is caching images, we do not get a good outlook on that type of usage at all for those visitors. Now, I'm not sure how the makeup of many people's lists, how much gmail constitutes it's a big enough segment and the list that i manage and work with to take note and enough to actually shake up the things that we can learn some things to keep in mind if google starts to roll out these caching protocols more widespread through their gmail clients is your metrics for gmail users could be severely impacted like i said you might not be able to get as much usage information from these visitors you also might not get to see your open rates as frequently depending on how often they are caching these images so if you see some drops in your open rates that might be something that you might want to segment with email domain to see if gmail is actually constituting that but the hypothesis of why Google might be going down this road is twofold. One is privacy. Google, some of the larger internet companies as of late have been taking some heat for the NSA fallout uh, and Mr. Snowden. A lot of people are wondering if this is going to be something that is going to be a PR move for them to say that we are anonymizing your email usages to these companies mm -hmm. by caching images, but also that it provides a faster experience. Google's caching service is ridiculously fast. The response time and turnaround times on their services is unbelievably fast. They have a lot of data centers. So the benefit of Google caching these images the delivery to the end user can be much, much quicker than what your server can handle. Even when you're using some of these enterprise systems, the data network that Google has is ridiculously fast. So from an end user standpoint, it does potentially provide a better experience, but at the cost of us learning more about our users and actually being able to be better marketers. So wanted to give a heads up. If you notice some mix-ups in your email stats over the next couple weeks, keep in mind that Google has been playing around with caching email images, which could be impacting your metrics on your email side of things quite heavily. So if you do see a mix up, try to segment out your Gmail users and see if that accounts for it. If not, then maybe you done did mess up and you should check <laughs> your email designs and your landing pages, but be aware that that's something that's rolled it, out. It's a really interesting thing to be for Google to be doing. And I'm curious as to why they chose email. I mean, is it, have you noticed it being a problem using email yourself? that d images download very slowly inside your client. I don't think it's something I've ever noticed. No, but, but I'm, I'm always on a fairly quick connection. Right. So I don't know um, if um, I'm necessarily the typical user case. Right. It, well, it's interesting to me that they would... Okay, so number one, they're doing this obviously on email. I wonder what the effects will be, for example, on emails you get inside Gmail that block images by default, right? So mm -hmm. does this sort of change, maybe open up the avenue for Google to sort of have cached versions of those images so there's no longer any risk for downloading those images and by default they're shown 
because right. Google already has cached sort of in quote safe non-tracked versions sure. of those things. So there's no reason anymore to block image downloads. Sure. But one other final point before we move on to the next topic is I wonder if this also opens up the possibility of their browser, Chrome, caching images and things across the internet itself. They're building this technology and there's good points for its usage, like it increases page download times and all of these things. Why wouldn't they do that across the web? So that'll be interesting. One thing, though, I did forget that you might want to keep in mind for Gmail users, if Google is caching your images, then you might, depending on how you structure your email campaigns, if you send out time-sensitive campaigns and you dynamically update images based on the email, so let's say you have a limited time offer sale, depending on the day, you'll actually replace an image on your server and that email, like you only have two days left, you have one day left or whatever. Just keep in mind, if Google is caching those images and that was your plan, the three days left image might be the one that actually gets rendered out Mm -hmm. to the uh, user. So keep that in mind if that's how you work with some of your email campaigns. That's a good point. So moving right along, guidelines for mobile website improvement professor (laughs) honorable rob give us a what what all right so this is uh straight from google and this is basically just a checklist for mobile website improvement so some things to look out for on your mobile websites common mistakes that people make ways to improve on those things some tools to use first and foremost obviously they're recommending setting up google analytics and webmaster tools across everything so they can track all of your data but also i mean obviously those are great tools i recommend them for everything you use so i'll just go through a few steps there's like three steps they you know in terms of an approach for attacking your mobile website and trying to make it a better user experience so step one is simply stop frustrating your customers that and that's exactly how they titled it so a couple of things they have in that section are removing cumbersome cumbersome extra windows from all mobile user agents. So things like JavaScript pop-ups don't tend to work very well on mobile phones, overlays, modal windows, download things. That are Those are all things that can work very differently across all the different mobile agents. Yeah, to me, it presents itself as an issue of being able to effectively code all of those mm-hmm. for all the mobile environments to actually render as you would expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know... Just testing it, for example, on your iPhone or your latest Android phone, and it works fine, that's not enough. Um, Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people out there on older versions or different versions, BlackBerry phones, Windows phones. There's tons of things out there, and they all... It's, it's almost like trying to code for the web 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You really have to look at everything and every device. Well, and you also run into the issue that has long been present on desktop, but I think a lot of people forget is still the case for mobile as well as dealing with different versions as well. Right. Not everyone always keeps their apps up to date. And so just because you are testing on the latest Android browser build or the latest Safari build doesn't mean that most of your users are actually running that. So again, like you were saying, some of these nice, very fly features can become like very QA intensive on a mobile device environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sort of speaking to that point, uh, another bullet they have here is provide device-appropriate functionality. So serve tablet users the desktop version when applicable, because it's not really a mobile user. Mobile phones and tablets are vastly different than they are tablets to desktop users. Another thing they have here is remove features that require plugins or videos not available on a user's device. It seems obvious, but maybe a lot of people aren't aware that Flash, that doesn't work on a lot of mobile phones or tablets for that matter. So if your landing page is playing a video, 
video that's a flash video, most mobile users aren't going to be able to right. see Make that. Sure so it has things an like HTML that. HTML5 fall over. Exactly. Let's see what else. Make quick fixes in performance. So that means things like checking page speed times using optimization tools. PageSpeed Insights from Google actually is really fly and awesome. I'd recommend it for everyone who's having maybe issues with page load times and, and want to improve a mobile user experience. You throw in a URL and it gives you all sorts of tips and, and guidelines that you can use to make your pages load quicker. And it even categorizes them in terms of these are easy fixes that should not take a developer very long to fix. Well, they actually have a server side download that you can do which will automatically do some of those optimizations as well wow really okay that's yeah. i mean that's like a given a, then. yeah there's yeah. like a page speed service that right now is like in beta that you can get for free mm-hmm. and you throw it up on your server and it'll, it'll essentially do a lot of optimization for you uh it changes around some things like image file names and things like that you need to be aware of but it does work really well a couple other things in that section, consider optimizing images, um, sprites, things like that, compressing them more heavily. Uh, compare the render and page load times of your top pages against some of your competitors' top pages. Just mm-hmm. see where you stand in terms of everyone else that's in your industry. Perform additional testing if you have a separate mobile website. So that gets at a whole nother level. If you don't have the responsive oh, yeah. websites and you try to direct people off to a different website, that can end up with people getting into an endless loop, mm-hmm. people not being able to use functions they expect to be able to use. Or like you making sure that your all your links resolve. So sometimes when people get into certain features, if you haven't done proper QA, people start hopping between multiple experiences and nothing is actually working as intended. And then they think they got sent to a new site altogether. Now make sure you're on point. If you're balancing a separate mobile platform that everything is really QA'd well and and is working as intended. Yeah, absolutely. So all of those step all of those steps, sub steps were part of step one, which was you don't know frustrate. Exactly. Don't, Arr, don't frustrate your user. So step two is facilitate task completion. So a couple of the points under there are optimize the crawling indexing and the searcher experience for your website. Um, that means unblocking resources, CSS, JavaScript that are blocked to bots so they can better understand your site and, and know that it's mobile friendly and all of those things. And obviously, this should be no different from your main site to your mobile site. Implement search engine best practices on your mobile website. So that means things like responsive designs. If you're going to use separate mobile sites, use rel alternative, use rel canonical tags on everything properly if you're not really sure what those are, all those listeners out there. Google them. There's plenty of resources. Optimize your popular mobile persona workflows for your site. I think this is something that a lot of people are missing. Mm -hmm. So people using your mobile site aren't using your mobile site in the same way that they would be using your desktop site. Oftentimes, these people on the run, they need a simplified version. They're looking for very specific things. For example, Home Depot. This is what I've talked about in some of the earlier shows. Me using the desktop version of the Home Depot site is not the same as me using the mobile version. Mm -hmm. The mobile version, I'm in your store it needs to default us, like a search store function. I mean, there's vast differences between how mobile users and desktop users use your website. And different layouts for those users make sense. Step three, convert customers into fans. So consider search integration points with mobile apps. I think that's pretty much a given. Investigate and or attempt to track cross-device workflows. So Which can be done well with... Google Universal. You, Google's analytics. Universal Analytics is, is starting to attempt to help with some of those things. So obviously look into those things, which will track logged in users across multiple devices and give you good insight on how people are using your mobile site versus how they're using your desktop site. So those are some interesting three steps to mobile website success straight from Google. Of course, we will tweet out the link. There's much more in there that we did not discuss. And obviously there's links to all those specific tools we did talk yeah. about. So a couple that I would cover just that I've 
because I've actually been engaging in uh, some recent mobile testing that I found pretty valuable is, and we've actually talked about this in the past, is making sure that your features that are present on your desktop website that make sense need to also be present on your mobile site. It can be extremely, it would fall into that first category, the frustration. If I had used your site in the past, a particular feature, and I get onto your mobile site, whether I'm on the go, whether I'm in the store, or just doing some research on the subway, and I can't access the feature that I've come to expect and that was critical for my visit in the past. So double check your feature set. Sometimes that might mean you need to repurpose it for mobile or redesign it altogether, but it's important to have your feature sets as complete as possible. A lot of users express frustration there. And lastly, what I would say is a lot of people from the design standpoint forget about the spacing issues that mobile presents itself especially when interacting with inputs and links uh, when you start to get on mobile devices and you're using a imprecise instrument like your finger on a touch screen the proximity of how close links are together and input fields like if i'm trying to fill out a form in my first and last name and those fields are pretty close together it can be a very frustrating experience to continually misclick and clear things that I didn't mean to, or click links, have a full page load, and then realize that's not where I actually intended to go. So think about when you're designing for mobile, what I guess I would consider kind of the fat thumb, like design cues that you need to take when you're designing for these devices and how you need to be aware of the input devices, which is in most cases are, are people's fingers, and how they might interact with your site, and how can we make this a less frustrating experience. So we're going to tweet out the link. There's a lot of guidelines and tips in there from Google that I think a lot of people miss out on, particularly speed. Really check out PageSpeed Insights. They have a lot of good tips on there. It's free, and they also have a service you might want to uh, take advantage of. Moving right along, Google Trends. Man, we are big on the G-O-O-G-L-E tonight, <laughs> but Google Trends. I am surprised how many marketers actually do not not use this tool. It can be a treasure trove of information. I will say in the past, it was a bit cryptic to use. In particular, one thing that I always was a bit critical of it was the intent of the keyword. So in the past, when you were doing some keyword research, depending on how broad you were going, you didn't really have a good way to understand what the user meant for search. For example, maybe you're searching a very general term like rice, but did someone actually mean rice is the food, rice university, rice crispy treats, this kind of delicious rice. There's all right. sorts of rice. Yeah, there's yeah. totally different use cases in all those. And, and it was a bit lacking in that area when you get that broad and looking for trends to be able to tell if that was what you were looking at. But Google Trends has actually released some very good updates that give you actually those insights into what people are searching for. So what it does now is allow you to nail down more specifically on these search terms and actually pre-populates searchers intent when you start using the tool. So maybe to back up a second, if you've never used Google Trends, so let's take a, a 30,000 foot up step back. It's a tool that Google has released, I don't know, probably four or five years ago that is really kind of a research tool into what people are searching for and trends over time that Google has seen in their search index and how people have used the tool. In the past, it has gone back multiple years. So you can do some pretty intensive research on interest 
and search trends and how those have evolved over time. This is helpful for me as a marketer to understand, especially when I'm doing like keyword and theme research, what I might want to be bidding on, what's actually trending popular. Also, if I see a spike in traffic from particular keywords, we might be able to back it out through Google Trends to see if there was potentially a big event at a certain point that spiked interest or yeah. things like yeah, that. Yeah, another thing I use it for is seasonality. Correct. Being able to see search volumes year over year that spike, you know, maybe, for example, during the holidays mm-hmm. and then are lower, much lower in the summer times, helps you understand maybe why traffic has dropped all of a sudden for your website, mm-hmm. you know, using Google Trends Should for a lot of those things. Should you fire the person you just hired? Or, <laughs> exactly. Or no, it's just a general yeah. trend. But anyways, it can be a treasure trove of information. So if you didn't know what Google Trends is, that's a brief synopsis. Now, having said that, like we had mentioned in the past, it was a bit clunky to use, not necessarily totally reliable in the information depending on how you are leveraging it but they've taken some great strides and making it much more accurate it also tries to measure misspellings and alternate terms and phrases in the same topic so if you're looking for something like Gwyneth Paltrow excellent actress trends will also now (laughs) automatically add as many different but related terms to that report so in addition to that explicit search that you're trying to do Google is also going to try to lump together what it sees as related terms so you can kind of get a better understanding of the intent of the trend that you're trying to look at. Now, depending on how strict you are trying to get with your research, that might not necessarily be desirable, but it is a nice addition depending on how you're going to be leveraging it. And But what's nice about it is let's say you do search for something like Gwyneth Paltrow. It will break down the trend research into what it's lumping into those results and show you how prevalent that additional term is into the index. So for example, if you're searching for Gwyneth Paltrow and it's also lumping in Paltrow, it will show you how popular that term is comparative to the rest of the index that you're searching for. So you can kind of get a grasp of, out of all the terms that Google is lumping in, these are also the three key terms that I might want to bid on if I'm using something like AdWords or AdCenter, or depending on just how I'm using that information, Google will further splice it down for you. So that is also pretty neat. One thing also that can be used with Google Trends now is if you're searching for interests, it's a topic report that you can launch within Google Trends, which isn't necessarily specific to keywords. That will actually also pass date itself, which is also kind of a new addition. So it's only available in the U.S., unfortunately, right now. But what it will do is show you things like categories like cars and DJs and things like that um, that are the most active topics in search for given time periods. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of chart general population interests over time. And like you were saying, maybe there's some seasonality trends that you are able to pick up from some of these reports, especially one nice thing with Google Trends is you can nail down on certain demographics. So let's say your key age range is, you know, young adults you can further segment your trend data that way and kind of understand, is there a cyclical cycle to people's interests over uh, the course of a year? If so, then I can plan my marketing at a certain time to really take advantage of when that buzz is going to be hottest and when competition also might be stiff, but we're ready because we have that trend information ready for us. So Google Trends, a lot of good updates to make it a lot more usable, a lot of information you can pull out of there. 
We'll tweet out a link to the article, but also I think there's some pretty good tutorials out there on how to use the tool. It can be a little bit intimidating if you've never used it to be able to pull out some good information. So if you want to get your research head on, impress your boss with some fancy charts and educate yourself, then definitely would recommend it. That's it for episode number 38. This has been the Beard Marketer's Robin Corey. Give us a call, 904-270-9603. Have a topic, have a suggestion, have a love story to tell us that is funny. Go ahead and call in. Might be featured on the upcoming episode. Also, give us a call if you need some help. We have a lot of experience in the industry. We also have a lot of connections, so if we don't have an answer for you, we probably can put you into contact with someone who does. But again, this has been Robin Corey, the Beard Markers, and we'll see you next week.